Hi, Rich. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. Everything's good. Good. Um, I thought a good place to start the interview would be to talk about, because obviously you do a lot of mixing and a lot of production as well, that it would be good to talk about the difference between mixing a project that you've worked on for a long time as the producer, maybe engineer, and mixing a project that you've come on to later as just the mixer. Well, I mean, to me, they're really different muscles that you're exercising in each case. Um, uh, when it's something that you're mixing that has come to you from another producer or an artist, uh, my goal is really just to try to execute their vision as best as possible and to try to interpret uh, their feelings and their mindset and their goals and their aesthetic and everything. Obviously, I have my own um, aesthetic that I want to bring to the project and usually that's part of why someone wants uh, me to be involved um, but essentially the goal is to try to figure out what pushes their buttons the most and to try to accomplish that uh, you know some not not a lot of people show up to mix sessions anymore uh, but when they do I find it to be really helpful even just for a day um, they don't have to be there through the whole process because that's pretty boring for most people but I think that even if there's a day where you can go through a few songs and get a vibe from them as to where their head's at, uh, that is deeply informative. Um, uh, whereas we're, when I'm mixing something that I produced, th that is just trying to uh, execute the vision that I've had from the beginning of the project. Usually from the beginning of a production, even before we start, I try to have a pretty clear idea of what I want it to sound like when it's done. And so throughout the process, you're just... Um, trying to just move forward on, on that, on every angle. Um, and also when I'm mixing my own project, I tend to, I'm still producing. So I'm still, my, you know, make some edits or changes or additional production things uh, during the mix process. Whereas if I'm mixing someone else's record, I won't really do that unless they ask me to. I know when mixing, you quite often have to make kind of judgments about what's the most important thing. And you were saying that people quite often hire you for your aesthetic what are the things that are quite often in the forefront of your mind in terms of the mix, like things like prioritizing depth or the low end or things like that? Yeah, I mean, um, it usually kind of goes in, in stages. The first stage of getting a mix together is you listen to the reference mix and try to um, figure out how that relates to the tracks that you're given. Sometimes you just push up uh, the tracks and they sound pretty close to the reference mix and sometimes they're quite far off uh, and you just need to assess to make sure all the parts are there. Because uh, quite often somebody will, nowadays, um, producers are using every kind of format available to them with quite a wide variety of things. So usually uh, things are bounced down and then I mix some Pro Tools. So they're sort of bounced out and oftentimes something goes missing. So you usually, I have a, um, a prep done beforehand where a lot of that stuff is looked at, but you know sometimes you catch something that isn't caught. Until, so at any rate, you want to make sure that all the, all the parts are there. And then... Um, I spend a lot of time looking at not just the bottom end, but like the the upper bottom end. That's where you have the sort of the bottom, the, the or kind of like where the top of, it's hard to explain, but like the top of the low end of like the bass drum or the 808 or the sub synth is a sort of clashing with the bottom end of say a piano or an, a, a guitar or even sometimes a vocal depending upon who's singing. Um, that area to me is rife with uh, competition. So you're, oh, I'm always going in there and trying to figure out um, 
how to place everything so that you're still getting the size of the instrument um, and the, and uh, but you're clearing out some space there so you don't have a lot of things rubbing against each other. The depth is part of the process that usually comes a little bit later once I sort of figure out, make sure that all of the parts are fitting together properly. And then you start thinking more creatively and about where you want things to be, uh, which ones are in the front and which ones are in the back. Um, you know, but, but most of the time I'm thinking about vocal and drums almost throughout the whole process from the beginning to the end. Those are the two things I really focused on. I had some questions kind of around that. Um, on the Seeger Ross record you worked on, obviously they're kind of well known for using a lot of reverb and space. Was there any particular ways that you had to kind of translate that onto the record? That was a pretty complicated album to mix, partly because um, their process is not one, they're not much of an analytical group of people. They tend to work only in the realm of ideas and about trying to make sure those ideas are coming forward. But there, as far as if something's not working, there's not a lot of analysis to figure out what the issue is. And that extends from the beginning of their recording process to the end. So by the time that you're mixing, there's a lot of ideas being thrown around um, and you're just trying to make them fit as best as you can. Um, so there was a, a great deal of processing on the vocal added during the mixing process. We I have a Kima, which is this, box that's often used in post-production. I've had it for quite a long time and it's sort of like Reactor in that it runs m modules that you can use to process audio or make sense out of, but it's all the processing happens in an external device um, and the language is written by this company. So it's sort of an oddball piece. Um, well, because I like to use it because of that. It doesn't sound like anything else. And when I showed that to Yonzi, he started running his vocal through through it uh, in the B room like for days on end and would bring them back into the mix. And so there was it was quite complicated because I really wanted his vocal to sound clear and he really wanted it to be veiled and quite affected. Um, and the drums were recorded in, in their uh, studio in Iceland where that's basically like an emptied out swimming pool. And so there was a lot of reverb on the drums just naturally occurring. Um, and it was a bit of battle to kind of create some sort of definition in there. And I'm not sure how much they, how much definition they really desire in, in their music on that record. You know what I mean? Also on that record, there's quite a kind of modern use of low end mixed with a lot of kind of traditional instruments. Did you have any particular ways to balance those two things? Um, I think that's just the way that I would normally do it, and that uh, I, I, I mostly listen to. Um, I listen to a lot of hip hop and have for pretty much my whole life, so I'm always interested in presenting the low end and kind of modern a deep foundational way um and uh i don't know if there's any particular tricks to that it's just it's just the way you feel about something and what you choose to prioritize do you have any favorite piece of equipment to work with that low end or get that low end when it isn't there i mean i can't remember what i would have used on that record because that was a, a little bit ago i was probably just using ssl eq and uh and a bit of EQ on the bus. There's a lot of like, on that record, I think there was a lot of 50 hertz being boosted. I had a TG curve bender across the bus. Um, and back then I was boosting like f maybe five or six dB at 50. Um, and that would mean that the the type of bottom end you're getting on the record is mostly coming from that. So you don't, it doesn't mean that you're getting an across the board boost. So you sort of have that on from the beginning and that informs all the other choices you make um, down there so you don't need to boost up as much of the individual channels um or even you know you do a bit of like uh 
obviously some reductive things um, to work around that automatic boost that you've already got in there. I think a lot of it really on that record is coming from that. And nowadays, I'm not really boosting on the bottom end quite as much globally. I'm working more individually and trying to decide uh, what's going to make its presence known down there. So there's probably less reductive EQ going on to cover for that uh, boost that would have been happening back then. Kind of following on from that, I wanted to ask about how you choose whether to process tracks individually or in terms of kind of uh, buses or the final two bus. I think yeah. When I'm mixing the there's that that's a good question because there are there are two different things. There's usually there's several grouping systems. So I'll have the individual tracks, um, which I will then group like things together uh, into an aux in the computer, and I might treat them similar. Like let's say there's you know uh, some acoustic guitars. Let's say there's maybe three acoustic guitars they generally have a similar profile, so I'll put them into an aux in Pro Tools and treat them in a certain way. Um, usually there's a bit of uh, sort of low-end honkiness coming out of an acoustic guitar, so sometimes you might do that individually, you could do that across the group. Then that will go into a sort of almost like a stem mixer that I have at the top of the session with about maybe 20 stereo tracks um, where I can affect groups of things there those things will then go out um sometimes into a console and in the console they'll be treated together as a group uh, in the console as a stereo pair and there may be um like a pair of distressors strapped across the insert of that in, in addition to what i've been doing and then of course everything gets fed into a, the big group which is the stereo mix bus what does your two bus normally look like and has it changed that much over the years uh, that's a good question. I mean, weirdly, it hasn't really changed that much. It, I've gone through phases where I've tried all kinds of things. At the moment, I'm pretty much right back to where I was 20 years ago, which is uh, a pair of EAR 660s, the same pair that I've had on the mix bus with the GML, adding some top end. Um, sometimes I'll pop in the curve bender for a bit of bottom end. I guess the difference is now is that I'll probably be running like, you know, maybe three or four or five different plugins across the mix bus as well. Some for spatialization, um, some just to tighten things up a little bit, but the overall sound of the record might be coming from, uh, the, the 660s. What are your favorite spatial effects to use on the master? Um, I mean, sometimes you can, uh, so, to be honest, the, one of the, the spatial effect that he's the most is uh, Acoustica, which is a sort of a strange uh, plug-in manufacturer. Their other plugins seem to take up a huge amount of resources on your on your computer, but they sound really good. They have a version of the SSL uh, G compressor called Sand, I think it's called. And it's I don't really use that for any compression at all, but as soon as you pop it in, it takes the edges and pushes them out further. Um, so for me, I'm using things like that for spatialization, not necessarily, um, putting on a global widener at that point. I'll use new gen, uh, I think it's called Stereoizer all throughout the, the individual tracks to widen things out. Um, and a few other pieces as well, but on the mix bus, I, I only will use something like that, which is not going to cause phase issues. Do you use parallel processing much? Uh, it kind of goes in ways. I mean, the drums, I'll use a fair bit of stereo uh, parallel processing. Vocals, I almost always have a 33609 
being paralleled off of the vocal bus. And the vocals will also then go through a pair of Magic Death Eye compressors, hardware units, um, as well as sometimes like an Avalon EQ or something like that. Um, yeah, so there's uh, distressors are often being paralleled off of, say, guitars, maybe synths. Um, uh, I mostly tend to use hardware units for parallel and in the box because plugins often have a mix uh, knob on them. There's less of a need for me to run an aux as a parallel when you can just simply slap something on. You can route all your whatever is keyboards into an aux and then just globally process them with your wet dryer right there. Uh, but uh, yeah, usually it's hardware units running the parallels. Do you ever do any mixing entirely in the box? I've tried it a few times, and I've never been that satisfied with the results. So, I mean, obviously some people are, have found a way to make that work really well. For me, it's never quite worked. I'll do, the closest I've come is mixing almost completely in the box, but with like a, I'll use an Equinox uh, stumming mixer. Or right now I'm using the Rupert New Centerpiece. Or um, That's probably the closest I've come. But even in those cases, to feel more comfortable, I always work in some outdoor and I even mixed some live albums as well. Are there any kind of big differences mixing live albums compared to studio albums and kind of any things that you wouldn't expect would be an issue that turned out to be? Yeah, live albums, I've mixed a couple things and um, it's it's all about con- trying to control. You don't have, the, the original recording often isn't, isn't controlled very well um, because you're in a space you have no control over and you know you don't really have that much control over what's going on on stage because they're performing for an audience. So by the time it gets to the point where you're mixing it, you're basically trying to take control of the situation and put it into a studio environment as best as you can. So there's just tons of reductive work going on. I think that one of the surprising things is that oftentimes you, it's almost impossible to get an audience to sound great um, from the live recording. So what you'll do is whether it's in the middle of a song or whether it's at the end of a song, sometimes the band is still playing while the crowd is cheering. So you, if you just turn up the audience mics, you're getting, you're just adding a reverb to the performers on stage. So you'll just take a chunk of crowd noise from another section of the, uh, of the concert and try to work it in um, to, uh, to augment the, what's naturally occurring there. I find that that happens quite a lot. And then sometimes, you know, you try not to have, have to have people, players like redo a spot, but occasionally you might have to have somebody drop in on something. If, if there was uh, something happening in the live concert that was maybe out of tune or the performers not playing in the section because they're doing something else uh, for the album. If you don't have that visual component, you need to deal with that. When you're producing or engineering an album, do you prefer to record live or do it more kind of um, sort of track by track. I, I sometimes I'll have the whole band play just to try to get some excitement, but it it's never I'm never my goal of the production in the end is oftentimes um, to have the band sound. Um, perhaps better than they do when they're just playing together live in a room. And so what we'll end up doing is maybe everyone will play together. And then if let's say we're trying to get drum tracks, then we will just basically take the backing tracks of the other players and then just have the drummer play along to that. Um, Sometimes we'll create demos like pretty detailed demos before we go in to record basics. And uh, sometimes we'll just overdub onto that. So there's not, you know, there's, there are times, or for example, if you're trying to figure out the direction of a song, um, 
like last year I produced, I was producing Death Cab for Cutie and they were in my studio and there were a couple songs where we felt like uh, the original direction that we had in mind wasn't quite working. And so then I would just have everyone play live. Um, They're super capable musicians and um, we would just sort of work all collectively to try to figure out where the song was going. And one player would sort of choose to go in another direction. The other ones might follow them. Um, And so in those cases, it's not really about recording so much as it is about ideas and aesthetics. Um, And in that case, we may keep uh, what we're getting, or we may just go, okay, right now we know where the song wants to go. Now let's get serious and tempo map it out and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, sort of depends on the situation. Have you ever kind of especially done any albums where the whole point was to do it, everyone live, kind of all in the same room, amps blaring sort of thing? I I don't think I have. I'd have to really think, uh, but I don't don't think I've ever really done that. Seems romantic, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If it's all right with you, I thought we could go through some kind of particular instruments and talk about your approach to recording and mixing them. Maybe if we sure. start with the drums, um, have you got any kind of favorite recording techniques that then go into certain mixing techniques? I mean, for drums, for recording techniques, um, I mean, I try to, this would apply to mixing as well as there's a habit, if it's an acoustic drum set, a lot of times people, when they're getting their sound together, will like crank up the room mics to get make it sound very exciting. Uh, I I prefer to try to get the sound to be as great as possible without having to rely on your remix. So I will probably just spend a while making the, um, making sure everything has impact. And the most important thing when tracking acoustic drums are the phase relationships between the different microphones you're using. Cause if you just throw things up and you're not paying attention, then if one of the microphones, even maybe if the studio wiring is wrong or who knows, uh, there could be a phase relationship that's flipped. It could be an issue with, so that would be in a, a technical phase issue. And then there could be a user phase issue when you have your overhead mics on top of a drum set. The phase relationship between where the snare mic is and where the overhead mic is above the snare um, will directly have an impact on how your drums are hitting um, once they're recorded. So I spend quite a lot of time uh, usually moving microphones around, overhead mics in particular, to try to get them to capture the drum kit in a way so that the, all of the mics are in phase. And oftentimes what that means is that the in the overhead picture, the snare drum or the floor tom or whatever is kind of a wide picture, so they might be fairly far off to the left or off to the right. Um, that's totally fine. Um, the other, th- you know, the other thing you try to keep an eye on are, are the phase relationship between the kick drum mics. Uh, it's easy for something like that to get to get out of out of line, and then you use your lose your punch there. Um, I mean, I think that you know the only other thing I'm pretty adamant about, uh, although I do slip occasionally, is I try really hard to never compress room mics, um, unless it's like an effect mic. But as far as like your your general casual room mics that go up, I try to never compress them when I'm tracking. It's partly because if you have a drummer who's hitting a lot of cymbals, um, those will drive the room mics and you can't undo it once it's really squashed. Um, so I try to leave that for further on in the process. Then you can add effects to them maybe or have some control over the filtering of them before it gets to a compressor so that you're not just being washed in. Um, I also take a lot of liberties when tracking drums to remove items so that the drummer can't use them and that maybe we will put them on later. Uh, one of the things that um, on the Biffy Claro album Ellipsis, there was a song called Wolves of Winter. And this is the first 
song that we i think we did some pre-production but then the first song we actually recorded was wolves of winter and but the process that i did for that was um kind of different for them which was basically i had we did a bunch of takes with the band playing and then i comped the drums and took the kick drum and derived midi notes from it took the midi notes and uh triggered my Fairlight to play the kick drum because I really wanted this kind of like super clean um, with a particular kind of face to it kick drum playing that was coming out of my Fairlight. And so I, I, we basically sequenced the kick drum then off of his comp to live performance. And then I sent uh, Ben back out there with no cymbals and no kick drum to play the song down. And he was like, he didn't look, he was not pleased because it's pretty awkward uh, to play a complicated song like that with half your drum set removed. Um, but it worked out great. And so th to me, it's, it's all anything's game at that point. Obviously, it varies kind of project by project, but do you have any kind of go-to mics or techniques for recording drums? I mean, it's... Other than putting Josephson's on the toms, which I, I think are the most obviously perfect mic for recording a tom, um, anything goes, really. You know, um, I don't really have any, any hard and fast rules. Maybe if you move on to electric guitar, could you talk about kind of your favorite ways to record and process them? Um, again, it's a similar conversation there and that you want to try to make sure that the mics, um, if you're doing multi-miking, are, are as in phase as possible. So you spend a lot of time uh, adjusting where the mic is on the cone and where the, if you're having, if you're using multiple mics, you want to, in my opinion, put them on the same cone and you spend a long time moving them back and forth to try to get the phase relationship as tight as possible. Uh, that extends to bass, by the way, which I think is one of the most um, commonly improperly recorded instrument uh, of any. Uh, very rarely does something come in where, where the bass is like recorded tight and in phase. Um, it's, it seems to be something that no one pays attention to. So when I'm and I and I think that bass benefits from like a pretty complicated setup because you want to get like the sub that you might get out of a large cabinet. You want the cl the the clean punch and finger sound out of um, a DI or something like that. So um, you spend a long time trying to line everything up um, so that you're getting the most direct um, impact possible. And the same goes for guitars. I spend I'm much more interested in phase relationships on guitars than I am in microphones. There's all kinds of mics you can use and they'll all sound great so long as they're in phase. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the amp selection also dictates what sort of um, microphones you're going to use. There might be some uh, where there's so much mid-range coming out that you can't use a condenser and you're just going to use some sort of like ham-fisted dynamic mics and that'll work out great and then sometimes you have a player who's doing something more nuanced um with a little more depth and you're going to try to put um large diaphragm condensers on there to try to pick up that nuance um i did a record with of monsters and men in iceland this past winter and the guitar player plays with a great deal of sort of complex sounds and what ended up sounding the best was actually we were going through a pretty large Marshall setup and we went through a, um, one of those devices that goes on, the, you take the speaker out of the head and it puts a load on the speaker out and also gives you a volume so that you can turn down the speaker. Um, because if you've ever plugged into like a 50 or hundred watt Marshall head, they're unbearably loud. So we would go into that and then turn the volume down. And then I put the Rupert Neve, uh, large diaphragm condenser mic, like, 
I'd say like two or three feet from the cabinet, like right in front of the cone. It sounded amazing. It sounded like you were standing in front of the amp. Um, and it felt really detailed and complex in a way that um, we wouldn't have gotten if we had just your standard sort of like uh, dynamics close mic onto the cabinet. Do you have any particular favorite compressors and EQs for electric guitar? I mean, I generally use Neve 1073s. Um, and compressors, you know, sometimes it's like an 1176, sometimes it's a uh, distressor, sometimes it's nothing. It really depends on the part. Um, if you're, if it's somebody who's playing through a lot of gain, they're, the amp does a lot of the compression for you, so there's no need to step on the amp after that. I try to basically present a guitar so that when it's coming out of the speaker after the, the console, it should sound as, as close as possible as it does when you're standing in front of the amp. So a lot of people tend to, um, when they record guitar, step on it and try to control it with all kinds of EQ and compressors. That's not, I should, I'm not really into that kind of thing. I want the guitar to sound raw, and I want it to sound like it as close as it, the experience is when you're standing in front of it. Of course, the recorded sound of anything, guitar in particular, it pales in comparison to actually how anything sounds. I think the general, the rec we're still in some kind of infancy stage of recording. Um, we can't even capture someone speaking where it sounds like how they actually sound. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I tend not to do that much processing onto guitars. Drums, in the end, I'll process a fair bit of. And uh, I mean, I generally like processing a lot of stuff, but I mean, I'll process guitars using pedals and all kinds of crazy uh, stuff on the way in. But as far as capturing the sound at that point, I, I try to make it just sound like you're standing in front of it. With drums, are you generally trying to get most of the sound from the overheads or using those more just as a kind of cymbal mics? It really depends. Um, uh, sometimes you're using them as just cymbal mics. Sometimes if the, the, the drummer is hitting the, hitting the cymbal so much that the overheads are not picking up enough of a kit sound um, and they're just getting washed out, I'll actually just close mic all the cymbals and get rid of the overheads entirely. Uh, but generally it's kind of, yeah, they're kind of like an overall kit sound in some cymbals. The cymbals tend to make their way into your track no matter what you do. Um, so they're just for like an overall kind of picture uh, type of thing. And then the individual drums are, are processed fairly heavily down the line anyway. If we move on to vocals, do you have any favorite kind of techniques or mics that you normally go to first? Yeah, I mean, I, I usually will try out a few different mics to see what sounds good on a singer. Uh, oftentimes it's something like a 251 or I, I like C800s. Um, and sometimes it's a 47. It really depends on the singer and what, what you have on hand. Oftentimes I've been using SM7s and they can sound really good as well. Um, and then it's a pretty standard vocal chain, 1073 into 1176. Um, and you're just trying to sort of capture it without getting in the way too much. Um, I'll oftentimes layer vocals up with, if you're doing a lot of backgrounds, I'll try to use different mics in the background so that they have uh, a bit of aesthetic depth to them. Um, and that may mean using other mics that are equally as hi-fi or may mean using, you know, like handheld uh, tape recorder mics from the 70s um, and layering sounds up like that so that you have sort of more of a filtered uh, group sound on the BVs. Um, but generally, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's your basic stuff. How do you decide if you're going to process on the way in or leave it for mixing? Um, if I feel really confident in what's going on, then I'll process things a fair bit. If I feel like 
and I want to mean confident, I mean not just that like I know that what I'm getting is good. It also means that you want to leave the artist enough room to um, be spontaneous without without it affecting, without it being held back by some processing that you're doing. So like if you're compressing the vocal a lot because there's a really sweet, quiet section of the song and then all of a sudden the singer kind of digs in, um, the vocal's going to be too squashed and you won't be able to undo that. So I'll I'll tend to like try to control it a bit on the way in, but not too much so that you're not held back and that you're not destroying um, what the artist is giving you at the time. Um, I mean, I know that uh, there are some older engineers who will just ride the vocal, ride the input on the fader into the compressor and probably some, some contemporary ones as well. Uh, but I'm always afraid to do that. And I'm mostly just listening for diction and I want to give the singer accurate feedback. Um, so I don't tend to do that uh, while doing vocals, but I'd love to do that someday. Have you ever had a situation where you compressed too much on the way in and you had to kind of figure out a way to work around it or try and undo it a little bit? I'm sure I have. I, I try not to. Um, more than likely, that will come up when I'm mixing someone else's records just because um, sometimes people will like bounce something, they'll get, like, get a sound up in Logic, let's say, that they really like, and they'll send you processed vocal tracks. And so you get these in and they'll already be compressed with reverb on them and whatnot. And they don't sound quite right, so you still need to run them through your gear to get them to sound the way that you like, but you're battling uh, heavily processed tracks. Um, that comes up quite a lot. And in that, there's no real hard and fast way to try to deal with those kind of things. If something's really compressed, then obviously I try not to add more compression. You'll just be trying to figure out where the sort of... Um, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, where the sort of peak area is that the compression is making it feel held back. A lot of times it's in the lower mid, so just go in and try to reduce some of that so that it gives an impression of more dynamics um, without there actually being any more dynamics. Do you use things like multiband compression and dynamic EQs much? Yeah, for sure. Um, the Waze makes a couple of multibands, so a great fab filter has some a great sounding multiband. Um, uh, UA has a few in there. Even some of their own stuff is great multi-band stuff. And yeah, you, you can use that for, oftentimes that's used just for sort of reducing problem areas. Um, you can also use it in creative ways as well to sort of accentuate drums. Um, but uh, usually you're just trying to sort of smooth out. Um, I hate using the word smooth, but usually you're just trying to sort of control offensive frequencies that are getting in the way of the vocal uh, parking in the way that you want it to in a song. Are you generally using those on individual things or more kind of buses to get rid of things in general? Or I'm really using them on individual things. I think those things can be pretty dangerous, so I, I probably wouldn't put them on a whole bus. Have you never kind of used them on the um, two bus at the end, really? I, I wouldn't do that. I'm sure there are people that are getting great results doing it, but for me, it, it uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I've, I'm sure I've probably tried it at some point, but uh, that's not anything that I would do. Moving on to acoustic guitar, have you got any favorite kind of recording techniques and processing that you do? Um, acoustic, I think, is actually kind of tricky to record. Uh, it's partly because each guitar sounds so different, and the microphone on an acoustic can pick up something completely different. It's moved to an inch left, right, up, or down. Um, so I try to use only one mic. Sometimes there'll be two mics right next to each other. Um, sometimes it's just like a vintage Sennheiser uh, condenser and sometimes it's a large diaphragm uh, 67 or something like that um, 
sort of depends on what's what's on hand and what sounds good. Um, I don't I, I don't really have any hard and fast rules there, other than you just try to find a great sounding mic that matches up with the part. It also depends on the the song. Like if the if it's a vocal and an acoustic, then the acoustic needs to have a certain amount of size because the acoustic is basically taking up the space of the band. Um, so you may like have put like an M49 on it and uh, U47 on the vocal or something so that each thing is presenting like a great deal of size in the track. <laughs> Whereas if it's just like a rhythm acoustic that's uh, a background accompaniment, you don't want that to have a lot of size. You want it to have a lot of sort of strident right-hand pick uh, rhythm happening. And then you'll use uh, usually a, a like a pencil condenser on it so that you're really just mostly getting that and not worrying about picking up a lot of the body. Do you do any mid-side processing in your mixing? Um, not that often. Uh, um, I can't say that I really do. I mean, occasionally I'll do that on certain instruments or, or keyboard tracks or something, but I wouldn't do that across the whole mix. You know, that'd be something maybe I should spend more time learning about, but I never really have, and uh, so I just haven't. I think lastly, moving on to piano, do you have any favorite kind of techniques um, for processing and recording them in terms of like upright and ground and anything really? Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time recording grand pianos over my time, and um, I generally like a, a pair of C12s pretty tight onto the hammers, um, and that way you're getting the most impact possible. I mean, the piano never sounds as better than it does when you're sitting in front of it playing it, so as much as you can get that kind of feeling, um, to me, that's what you want, particularly if you're dealing with piano that's going to be in a track where it's competing with bass and drums and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, you're going to want the impact of the of where the hammers are hitting the strings. I've often found with if tracks are getting really dense, um, we found this out with Muse on a couple of records that like the acoustic piano just can't cut through. Um, no matter how much you're EQing, it always sounds a little sort of veiled um, and doesn't have as much personality. So sometimes we'll just use a sampled piano and. Um, like keyscape or something like that and it sounds great in the track and it's really even and the the attack is always there and it cuts through really well so um sometimes we'll do that you know for uprights it's great to have you know some small pencil condensers you can put them over the hammers you can put them behind the piano i think with uprights you can get really creative because you wouldn't be going to an upright in the first place unless the goal was to do something kind of creative with the part anyway uh, so you could do all kinds of things, room mics, whatever, um, uh, sort of anything goes. I mean, and I've done some of that stuff on the grand piano. I, I went through phases where I was really into treated piano or what people call prepared piano, where you sort of drape things over the strings themselves so that when the hammers hit them, they sort of make kind of a buzzing sound. Um, there's an artist named Kelly Moran, whom I'm a huge fan of. Uh, she's on Warp. And her, all of her recordings are prepared piano. They're just incredible. Uh, and to me, those recordings are, are, are kind of amazing because she's going up and down the fingerboard and every note is completely even. It's very difficult to do that. When I worked for Philip Glass, that was something we would spend quite a long time on, just moving microphones around to try to make sure that every note up and down the instrument was being presented in an even fashion. With like rock tracks, people tend to play in one sort of position on the piano, so it doesn't matter as much. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think the piano is kind of a world in, in itself um, that you can uh, do all kinds of things. You just got to make sure you get the basic elements to be presented uh, forward. Thinking about Philip Glass, especially with working with kind of more experimental musicians, um, are there anything 
that kind of in your memory stand out as really weird techniques that you use in sessions or things that you kind of never saw yourself doing but you ended up having to do in a session? I mean, my time working for uh, the Philip Glass, it, the, I think the thing that I came away with it was how unexperimental the process was because even though the music might be melodically experimental, the, the processes were very deliberate and extremely technical. And I feel like I came away from that situation with a far more technically minded than I was going in. There would be a lot of time spent on, um, I mean, this was a while ago, so you were still locking up um, different formats. You might be locking up different digital formats with Pro Tools, with, we were using Digital Performer a lot at that point. Um, and everything was very deliberate before the session started. The things had to be all tempo mapped out. And Phil's conductor, Michael Reisman, would do tempo maps by hand. He wouldn't use a click. So he would oftentimes just sit there and the click would be sort of assigned to one key on the keyboard and he would go through and sort of tap out where the changes would be. And that was sort of his way of conducting, I guess, the, the score. Um, and everything, of course, was written down on a score, so you're following along uh, even all the way through mixing. You're looking at a score, and, and Phil would be like, he'd point to the score and say, I'm not hearing that French horn there. Um, and so I ended up being able to read scores pretty well, and that's something that still comes in handy if you have a string session or something like that. But uh, I, yeah, I think that my, my main takeaway from that was that even though the musicians were experimental, the process was not. The process was very uh, deliberate and technical in order to capture whatever it is that they're doing. Are there any recording sessions that come to mind where you did use kind of very experimental recording techniques? Yeah, I mean, I, I, even today I try to do that as often as possible. It's hard for me to, to narrow down, um, you know, one particular thing because there's I'm trying to always do something that um this may be challenging for the session or challenging for the artist um it, it would be too uh, not a very good answer but it's too hard for me to to kind of narrow it down I thought um to finish off it'd be nice to talk about maybe a little bit how you got your start in the kind of industry and what led you to do a lot of mixing as opposed to kind of other studio work yeah, I mean, I think that from a young age, I became addicted to music and just surrounded myself with it uh, at all times. And even though I had an interest in other things as well, that was the kind of constant that was always there. And at one point, I remember coming across like uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, the Brian Eno, David Byrne record. Um, and I also was into the Talking Heads at the time and noticed Brian Eno's name on Remain in Light as a producer. And I'm, that's the first time I sort of thought about like what that meant um, and how what that meant to a recording. And then the, I just sort of realized that I just wanted to spend all my time, you know, in the studio and pursuing sounds and music and trying to contribute to the, in, a same, in the same way that, you know, the music is becomes sort of a partner in your life. I wanted to contribute to that being a, a partner in other people's lives. So it's really kind of all I ever wanted to do. Um, and I uh, went to Berkeley School of Music and I started working at a studio in Boston called Q Division where I met uh, John Bryan and some other folks um, whom I still keep in touch with. I haven't seen John in a minute, but there's other folks there I keep in touch with. And, um, and then moved to New York, started working at some hip hop studios, uh, ended up over at the Looking Glass, um, and that was uh, quite, I was a huge Philip Glass fan before I started working there, so that was pretty exciting for me. Um, 
I felt like there was a certain point there. I was producing indie records in addition to working at, on, at, on Phil's music. And at, there was at some point where I just felt like I wanted to deliberately um, make sure that my mixing game was up to speed. And at that point, Phil's studio wasn't that busy. I mean, there were some heavy hitters rolling in there. David Bowie was working there a lot. We'd see him all the time. But um, I just had keys to this, this SSL studio that nobody was using a lot. So I would, when we weren't working on his stuff, I would just go in there and, and, and work and try to hone uh, hone my craft, I guess. Um, and then by the time uh, I moved out to LA, I reconnected with John Bryan and we worked on Fiona Apple's second record. Um, and off of the back of that, Rick Rubin just called my apartment, or he didn't call, but his uh, Lindsay Chase, who works for him, called and wanted to set up a meeting. And I went and met with Rick and he was really into the sound of that Fiona Apple record and asked me to start um, working for him primarily in the mixing on the mixing side um, so I started mixing some stuff for Rick and as soon as that happened everything just sort of took off and so I was since then I've always kind of split my time up doing productions and mixing um, and uh, and it, it's good because after you mix for a long time for me I, I get kind of hungry to get back in the seat and be, be really creative on something again and by the same token like if I take when I'm producing, I'm you become sort of like a member of the of the group, and by the time you get the thing to the end, you just want to just chill out and have a good time mixing somebody else's handiwork. So, I think the back and forth has been um, feels pretty rewarding for me. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Yeah, this is wonderful.